Hello and welcome to the January 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, always, always with me, Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, which, if you don't know already, is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Happy New Year, Art. Happy New Year, Brad. You know, we, we this is the second New Year we've celebrated on our podcast. We were together in 2012. We've been saying, doing it that long. Huh? Yeah, it's wow. been a long time. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? My New Year's resolution is to uh, reduce the number of typographical errors in lesbian and gay law notes. Your, uh, your, your resolutions last year were very lesbian and gay law notes fo- focused as well. Yes. Which brings me to my next question, which is do you um, – your process. Do you, um, do you work through these cases in your sleep? I mean, how do you keep up with – with all I this. keep up with it. It's I do a, a Westlaw search. Well, don't give day. away the trade secrets. Every day, uh, using various search words, which I will keep secret. Yes, you should keep and, them secret. Uh, I also have program search. Any case added to the Westlaw database that cites Roma versus Evans or Lawrence versus Texas shows up in my inbox, on my email every morning. Uh, also, any law review article. But how added. much do you wind up reading that doesn't make its way into law notes then? I, I screen out a few cases where I think they're really of peripheral interest, uh, but I try to be uh, expansive in what I include because I know that uh, different people read law notes for different purposes, and so I want to be sure to try to hit the cases that people might be interested in. You know, you thinking about your readers, that warms the heart. Not what you like, but what you think others might like. Well, the publication is for the readers. Yeah. Well, you know, okay. that's still good stuff. And for those who don't know, uh, Professor Leonard is, is sort of – Relentless in his in his looking for every single case that could possibly include, and um, it's pretty impressive to be uh, peripherally involved in watching how that process unfolds. All right, so with that, happy 2013. Let's start with the lead story, or the 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 lead story concerning a couple of developments in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, our listeners have probably heard some news. Uh, I'll sum up in one paragraph, and then let you. Uh, try to get through um, all the developments in two minutes or less, or maybe 15 or less. Um, as you might know, the Supreme Court announced on December 7th that it would review uh, a couple cases, the Ninth Circuit's Proposition 8 ruling and the Second Circuit's Doma, uh, Doma ruling concerning Section 3, the Windsor case. But as you point out in your coverage of this, in both cases, the court indicated that it would hear argument about whether the petitioners had standing to seek review of the decisions meaning it's possible they won't even reach the merits of these cases. Distinctly um, possible. And the arguments in these cases will probably take place, as you point out, in late March. And opinions could be coming down in uh, the, 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 the month of, of June Pride. Wouldn't that be fitting? Yes. And in, in fact, since this issue of Law Notes was issued, it's, uh, we're actually recording this uh, in the second weekend in January. So uh, the Supreme Court has announced its argument schedule. And the Prop 8 case will be argued on March 26th, and the Windsor case will be argued on March 27th, the Supreme Court having strategically selected the first and second days of Passover for these crucial arguments. Uh, We don't know whether the three Jewish members of the court had specific input into this decision. Interesting. Uh, Or whether the clerk just did it. Another fascinating uh, One thing that that, uh, we should let our our readers know right up front, uh, because this will be a very good source of information for people. The Supreme Court sets up a page on its website for every case in which it grants cert, but it doesn't normally make the links publicly available. But it decided to make the link to that page publicly available for these two cases 
because it, uh, it felt that there would be lots of interest and people would want to quickly have a way to get access to all the filings. So if you go to the Supreme Court of the United States homepage, you'll see on the left side uh, there are links that you can click. And if you click on the, the uh, link for docket, the page that comes up will provide a link to the DOMA Prop 8 page in wow. which you will find the court's order granting cert, the briefing schedule, the order appointing Professor Jackson amicus curiae, which I'll talk about in a moment, and the cert petitions themselves, the papers filed in response to the cert petitions, the reply papers, and the rather interesting trail in the Windsor case of supplemental papers, uh, which I'll also go into briefly uh, about what's going on in these cases. So first, the Prop 8 case. Yeah, so what right? happened? So Prop 8 case, uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, in uh, May 2008, the California Supreme Court said same-sex couples have a right to marry as a matter of California constitutional law. Same-sex couples started marrying in June. Opponents of same-sex marriage already had enough petitions on file to try to amend the state constitution to ban same-sex marriage. Uh, this was uh, denominated as Proposition 8, and it was on the ballot on, I believe it was November 5th or November 6th, whatever election day was in 2008. I think it was November 5th. And it was passed by the voters uh, by not a huge margin but by a comfortable margin. And that put into the California Constitution an amendment that said that only the marriage between a man and a woman would be recognized or valid in California. Uh, in the meantime, thousands of couples had married. A uh, lawsuit was immediately filed challenging the enactment of Proposition 8 uh, but the California Supreme Court held it had been validly enacted, but the people who had gotten married prior to its enactment were still legally married in California. And there are various other things uh, that happened, but one of the most important for purposes of this case that we're talking about now is the Supreme Court said that although the new amendment said same-sex couples can't marry and their unions won't be recognized as marriages, it didn't say that the court's underlying equal protection ruling was invalid. And therefore, the state of California still had the obligation to provide equal rights and benefits to same-sex couples. They have a domestic partnership law, and the court said that law must be interpreted to grant all state law rights of marriage to same-sex couples who are registered as partners. Uh, so the week that the California Supreme Court issued that decision, a new organization formed for this purpose called the American Foundation for Equal Rights filed suit in federal district court claiming that Prop 8 violates the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. That case went to trial. Uh, it was originally known as Perry versus Schwarzenegger. Uh, the case went to trial. The governor of California refused to defend Prop 8, as did the attorney general then, Jerry Brown. And so the federal district judge, Vaughn Walker, allowed the people who had proposed Proposition 8, who I'll refer to as the proponents, allowed them to intervene as defendants to defend their proposition. Uh, Judge Walker ruled in 2010 that Prop 8 was unconstitutional because he found, under the 14th Amendment, same-sex couples have the same right to marry as anyone else. So he went to the ultimate question of the right of same-sex couples to marry. Uh, the governor and the attorney general announced themselves satisfied with this decision with which they would be happy to comply, and they would not appeal. The interveners ran to the Ninth Circuit after Judge Walker refused to stay his decision and got an injunction to stay pending an appeal, and they appealed 
But a real question was raised whether they could appeal, whether under Article Three of the federal constitution they had standing to appeal this decision. And the question that the Ninth Circuit immediately confronted is, under California law, do proponents of an initiative have standing to defend it in court? And there was no California case directly on point, so they referred the question to the California Supreme Court, which then uh, heard briefing and arguments and issued an opinion stating that under California law, proponents do have standing. So back to the Ninth Circuit, which uh, accepted this uh, answer from the California Supreme Court and decided that, therefore, in the view of the Ninth Circuit panel, the proponents had standing and the court could get to the merits. But the court decided to reframe the case. Instead of deciding whether the 14th Amendment provides a right to marriage for same-sex couples, they said, no, the question before us is whether after same-sex couples were recognized as having a right to marry by the California Supreme Court, whether it could be rescinded by an initiative. And they said in order to rescind it, the state would have to have a rational basis for taking away the right to marry from people to whom it had been granted, especially considering the context that under the California Supreme Court's marriage ruling, same-sex couples had an equal protection right to the, all the benefits. Doesn't, doesn't that force, marriage. even framing the question that way, doesn't that force folks who, who do feel that that we should be excluded from the right to marry to make the same arguments they would be yes. making in the first place? They'll be, making the, they'll be making the arguments though, that those arguments provide a rational basis for rescinding the right to marry. Uh, the Ninth Circuit was not persuaded by those arguments, and by two to one, the panel ruled that Prop 8 violated the 14th Amendment by rescinding the right to marriage without a rational basis. And, and before we like, – we're going to segue to the Supreme Court in yes. a second. It, do you see this as the courts reframing in an effort to have this decision survive, the very review we're about to talk about? Well, uh, one thing that I think we've speculated about before in these podcasts, that they may have framed it that way to insulate it from judicial review. Or they may have framed it that way with the idea of uh, appealing to Justice Kennedy, the presumed swing vote on the Supreme Court, because they based their decision heavily on his opinion from 1996 in Romer versus Evans, the case that struck down uh, California. Colorado. Co- Colorado. Colorado Amendment 2. Uh, so, uh, you know, they're, they're reaching out to Justice Kennedy. And uh, they're also perhaps trying to insulate the case by making it a very California-specific case uh, so that the Supreme Court wouldn't think it's of more national import. But evidently the Supreme Court thinks what happens in California is of national import. It's it's the largest state. It's a substantial portion of the population of this country. Uh, So the only cert petition that's filed in this case was filed by the proponents. And, of course, in responding to the cert petition, uh, the American Foundation for Equal Rights, represented in this case by uh, David Boyes and Ted Olson, uh, premier appellate litigators, uh, they raised again the standing issue in their response. They pointed out that the issue of Article Three standing for the proponents is still an issue that needs to be confronted. So when the Supreme Court granted the cert petition, on December 7th, they were first granting review on the question presented by the proponents. And the proponents were not having any of this reframing of the case that the Ninth Circuit did. The proponents put the question whether the 14th Amendment prevents California from defining marriage as the union of a man and a woman. Uh, So that's the question on which cert was granted, although the court, of course, is free uh, to decide the case on whatever theory it wants. 
but in granting cert, the court added the question whether the proponents have standing under Article Three of the Constitution to represent the state of California in federal court in defending this constitutional amendment, uh, which must mean that at least four members of the court think that is a serious question to be confronted. Uh, so this means that in that case, uh, which is now called Hollingsworth versus Perry because Mr. Hollingsworth is the first on the list of the individual proponents uh, who, in addition to their organization – Good, quite, yeah. quite an honor. If, yeah. if you're if you're into this kind his, of thing, his name will be immortalized <laughs> in the books. Depending, uh, I'm sure he's not too happy if his name is immortalized in establishing a constitutional right to same sex marriage. That's right. That's right. But uh, so the the court has set argument in that case for March 26th, and it could go in any of a number of ways. People have come up with these typologies of different ways it could go, depending on who does what. Uh, it could uh, answer the question posed by the petitioners with a yes and say that California does violate the 14th Amendment if it excludes same-sex couples from marrying. And that could presumably uh, invalidate state anti-marriage amendments throughout the country. I I know you're going to get to Windsor, and I want to – as you're talking about it, I mean one one thing I'd ask you to speculate on. Don't tell me you won't speculate it on. We always argue about that – is – does the fact that they, they, they're also taking up the Windsor case suggest anything about where they may end up in terms of – because it does give them the opportunity to, as the expression, you know, sort of split the baby in, in terms of giving us a That's partial victory uh, in some ways. I, I, I'm wondering whether you can read anything from them granting on both what might be going on here. And you can obviously tell our listeners what's going on now yeah. with the Windsor case. I, in that context. I, I, think, I think you could read into it that they realized with all these cert petitions on their doorstep that they had to take a first crack at these issues. And uh, to deny cert in the uh, Prop 8 case would be sort of cowardly, <laughs> you know, because the question is directly presented to them. But uh, the Supreme Court does have a tradition of trying to decide cases on the narrowest constitutional ground they could. Uh, one thing they could do, of course, is to rule against us and and hold that there is no 14th Amendment right to marry. Uh, I think – that is a possible but not likely outcome. Uh, I think that it is more likely that by a vote of maybe five to four, maybe even six to three, uh, it's possible that the court will decide to affirm the Ninth Circuit on the narrowed reframing of the case. Possible, not definite. And one thing I've been speculating about lately is the possibility of no majority in the case. What if a handful of justices think there's no standing A handful of justices think that same-sex couples do have a right to marry under the 14th Amendment. A few justices agree with the Ninth Circuit's approach, and a few justices say, no way, no way, we're ever going to vote for same-sex marriage. I would account Justice Scalia in that camp and probably Justice Thomas and most likely Justice Alito. There's been a lot of speculation about how the chief justice will go. He's seen as a bit of an unguided missile since the Affordable, <laughs> the Affordable Health Care Act case. May, sorry, I've never yeah. heard someone refer to yeah. it that way, and that may be the best yeah. description I've right. heard so People far. are unsure you know, what, what's going on <laughs> with But Chief that's Justice actually Roberts. an improvement for us right. in some ways because people would have assumed right. he was a very precision-guided missile. So, so who knows? This is, this is going to be a real cliffhanger to see how this comes out. Now, okay, so then turning to Windsor. Yep. All right, the Windsor case. Uh, Edie Windsor uh, married her partner of decades, Thea Spire, mm. in Canada. In uh, 2007, uh, Ms. Spire was already seriously ill, had been ill for many years, uh, and she died two years later in 2009. And after she died, uh, Edie Windsor uh, 
was stuck with a tax bill because of the value of the property they owned. Uh, the tax on on Spire's uh, share of that value was hundreds of thousands of dollars. None of which would have been due if none of which would have been due if their marriage was recognized. Right, if their marriage was recognized. Now, uh, there was a very good argument to be made that as of the date that uh, Miss Spire died, died, uh, Edie Windsor's marriage would have been recognized under New York law. There were already appellate division rulings in New York and uh, positions taken by the governor and the attorney general that same-sex marriages from Canada would be recognized in New York. But the IRS wouldn't go along. They said under the Defense of Marriage Act, Section 3, uh, we are limited uh, and may not recognize same-sex marriages for any purpose, including for purposes of inheritance tax. So the way you do this with taxes is you pay and sue for a refund. So the, the tax was paid and the suit was filed uh, by the ACLU on behalf of Edie Windsor in the Southern District of New York seeking a refund. Uh, the filing of this suit took place at a time when the uh, lawsuit in the First Circuit, the Gill case, and the suit filed by the Attorney General of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth case, were pending in the First Circuit. And the First Circuit uh, case uh, had been defended by the Justice Department uh, on the ground that they felt that Section 3 survived rational basis scrutiny. Uh, but now with the filing of the Windsor case and the filing at around the same time of the Peterson case in Connecticut by gay and lesbian advocates and defenders, also a Section 3 challenge uh, to DOMA, uh, the Justice Department now is going to have to answer these complaints. And these complaints, the Peterson and the Windsor cases in New York and Connecticut, were rising in the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit had no case law on the appropriate standard of review for an equal protection claim by gay litigants. So the possibility of heightened scrutiny yeah. was actually on the right. ta table. The, the possibility of heightened scrutiny was on the table. It wasn't in the First Circuit because a prior First Circuit case had held that rational basis was the appropriate level. So that's the way the case was argued. Uh, the Justice Department decided to take a look. What if it was heightened scrutiny? Would Section 3 survive heightened scrutiny? They decided it wouldn't. And so then the question was, what are the arguments for heightened scrutiny? And once they went over all the factors that the Supreme Court looks at in deciding what level of judicial review applies in an equal protection challenge, they decided this should be a heightened scrutiny case. They decided that sexual orientation was a traditional ground of discrimination by the government, that uh, in a, a variety of ways the government had uh, traditionally treated gay people as inferior uh, in terms of legal rights and benefits, and uh, looking at, at the history and looking at the nature of sexual orientation, uh, they decided it was a heightened scrutiny case. So the Justice Department announced they weren't going to defend Section 3. They said, pursuant to the President's oath of office, we will continue to enforce it until such time as either the courts declare it unconstitutional or Congress repeals it, but we're not going to defend it. So they notified the House of Representatives, as the law requires them to do, and they notified the Senate. Uh, and uh, the House of Representatives, uh, in the control of the Republican Party, decided they were going to defend it. And they hired Paul Clement, a former Solicitor General during the Bush administration, to represent them in defending. And so this is a three-party case. Uh, the court allowed, the district court allowed Mr. Clement to intervene as a defendant. Uh, the Justice Department is nominally a defendant, but they actually argued 
that the uh, Section 3 was unconstitutional. And, of course, the ACLU representing uh, Edie Windsor and the cooperating attorney who uh, is arguing the case is Roberta Kaplan from Paul Weiss. They argued that it's unconstitutional. Now, the position of Windsor in the ACLU was that it's unconstitutional under rational basis or heightened scrutiny. The position of the Justice Department was that it's unconstitutional under heightened scrutiny but not under rational basis to be consistent with their position in the First Circuit. And the position of Mr. Clement is that it should only be a rational basis case and that it's unconstitutional under rational basis. So this is all gets constitutional under constitutional yeah. under rational basis. So the district court decided to do it as a rational basis case and said it's unconstitutional. Uh, it was appealed to the uh, Second Circuit by both the Justice Department and GLAG, the bipartisan legal advisory group of the House, which had hired Mr. Clement. The Second Circuit decided that the Justice Department was right. It's a heightened scrutiny case although it was a two-to-one vote in the Second Circuit, heightened scrutiny case, and Section 3 doesn't survive heightened scrutiny. But the interesting thing is that the First Circuit's decision, striking down Section 3 on rational basis terms, came out before the uh, Second Circuit was going to uh, be dealing with the Windsor case. Uh, and the ACLU decided to file right after uh, a cert petition had been filed in the First Circuit case, the, uh, the ACLU decided to file a petition for certiorari before judgment with the Supreme Court and to ask the Second Circuit to delay hearing the case. They said, look, the First Circuit's case is probably going to go up. It makes no sense uh, for the Second Circuit to hear arguments and issue an opinion in this case. The Supreme Court should take it directly and consider the cases together. Uh, and on September 11th, the Solicitor General filed a petition basically agreeing with the ACLU and asked the Supreme Court to take the case uh, before judgment by the Second Circuit. But the Second Circuit refused to postpone <laughs> their argument. And a few weeks later, they held argument, and they really rushed it because just a few weeks later in October, they issued their decision. And uh, it seems that the petition granted by the Supreme Court in this case is the petition filed by the Solicitor General a few weeks before the Second Circuit argument. Uh, after the Second Circuit opinion came out, Mr. Clement filed a cert petition, and the Solicitor General filed a supplemental brief pointing out to the court that they could now treat the prior cert petition as a petition for cert from the Second Circuit argument. So although if you look at the website and you look at the cert petition that was granted, you'll see the cert petition that was granted was the petition of the Solicitor General, which is why this case is going to be called United States versus Windsor rather than Bipartisan Legal Advisory Group of the House of Representatives versus Windsor because that's the name on the cert petition that Mr. Clement filed. It's all very complicated, but what it means is that the court will be looking at the Second Circuit and the district court's decision uh, in Windsor, and the and court. The key question there is obviously Section Three of DOMA, which no, uh, what? not necessarily. Thought, what, well, no, one. <laughs> they because, don't have to reach that issue. The court, <laughs> the court added two questions. Hold on, let me rephrase. If they reach the merits, if the court the question merits, will be Section Three of DOMA, right? But now, reiterate what we said before, which is they also inserted the standing issue here, right? right? But they they inserted it in two ways. Okay. Uh, first of all, they said okay the bipartisan legal advisory group of the House of Representatives, do they have standing under Article Three to appeal 
the district court's decision. Uh, they're just a committee of the House of Representatives. The Senate has not joined in this appeal. It's not an appeal by Congress as such. It's not even really appealed by the House because it was a committee that set this up. It wasn't the entire House that affirmatively voted on this, although the House subsequently has changed its rules to designate this committee as representing it uh, in, the, in the rules that were just adopted by the new Congress this January 2013 after the fact. Uh, but they said also, we have some question about the Solicitor General's position here, about the, the U.S. government appealing this case. They tell us they agree with the Second Circuit. Are they presenting us with a real case of controversy you know, when they agree with the Second th this Circuit? This raises the most amazing – could be the most amazing outcome, which is the cases which everyone would think would be sort of landmark LGBT yeah. rights cases could turn out to be landmark standing-related right. cases. And there's an additional standing issue in the case as well because uh, Blagg has been consistent in arguing throughout this case that Ms. Windsor didn't have standing to bring the lawsuit because they point out that the marriage equality law in New York was not passed until – several years after Ms. Spire died, and that until that point, there was no definitive ruling by the highest court of New York on whether same-sex marriages from out of state would be recognized. Now, the Second Circuit resolved that issue in favor of Windsor. They, they said that there were enough appellate division rulings and other things that indicated that same-sex marriages were being recognized so that she this would have This is making me very tired, Arthur. So it seems, there's, there's just a lot going on here. And in their supplemental, <laughs> in their supplemental brief that they filed – And uh, you're getting more excited. Yeah. Blagg <laughs> continues to argue that Ms. Windsor doesn't have standing. So everyone's standing is an issue. But uh, the Supreme Court, after they granted the cert petition, realized that none of the parties in the case – was likely to make a very strong argument against standing since all the parties in the case want the court to decide the case on the merits except maybe Blagg would like to see it dis dismissed on the grounds of, of Windsor standing because Blagg has been arguing all along that it's the First Circuit case that should have gone up to the Supreme Court. And there is a cert petition there but the court hasn't ruled on it. Uh, so uh, in any event, standing could be a big issue. So they appointed, as you mentioned they appointed, earlier. They appointed Professor Vicki Jackson of Harvard Law School with the specific directions to brief and argue the issue of standing, not of Windsor's standing because Blagg's going to argue that, uh, of Blagg's standing and of the government standing, the Justice Department standing in the case. Uh, so uh, when they hold the oral arguments, uh, in this case on March 27th, Part of the argument is going to be specifically devoted to the standing issue and part is going to be devoted to the merits. As to how it might come out, nobody knows. I mean, the court, uh, in a very interesting op-ed column that uh, Linda Greenhouse, the former Supreme Court reporter of the New York Times who continues to uh, write on the Times uh, blog, uh, she speculated that the court is seriously interested in resolving these standing issues, that in fact they had a case last term in which it seems Justice Thomas was drafting a standing opinion but couldn't get a majority of the court to sign on to it, and ultimately the court dismissed that case as cert improvidently granted and didn't issue an opinion. So she's speculating that maybe the reason they've added these standing questions is that they're really serious about doing a really definitive ruling on standing. And it could be that that will be the major thing they address and depending how they resolve it, they may or may not get to the merits of either of these cases. So this is going to be an exciting Supreme Court term. <laughs> exciting Supreme Court term. Uh, well, you know, all eyes on, on Washington on March 26th and 27th, and then a few months later, uh, May or June, uh, they'll issue their opinion. This is almost too too much for, for us to handle here yeah. uh, in terms of 
what could be the possible outcomes. Um, all right. So that's a good job, Art. That's sort of an impossible topic you just uh, you just addressed. We're going to take a short break. When we return, um, we'll be discussing a case out of Montana concerning an effort by six same cups. Oh, see, now I'm tongue-tied. Art. Six same, same sex, sex couple. <laughs> you try saying that fast several times. <laughs> Who uh, in Montana were seeking to obtain the equivalent of civil unions or domestic partnerships. Stay with us. We are back discussing the case of Donaldson v. State of Montana. And here the Montana Supreme Court has ruled that plaintiffs challenging the failure of the state to accord legal, legal recognition to same-sex partners, uh, and as we mentioned on the segue, uh, seeking essentially the equivalent of domestic partners, uh, benefits, or um, civil unions, that they cannot seek a broad declaration seeking that that right. But also they do something here, which is that allowing them to um, – allows them – remains the case to allow the plaintiffs to replead um, what exactly their claims are. And I want to pause on that when we get to it. But essentially – Let's let's do the background here. And you mentioned in your note that this is in some ways a novel lawsuit because of the relief, the type of the relief that the plaintiffs are trying to seek here is not marriage, but rather something that will afford them some legal protection short of marriage. So right. why don't the, we start with a little you know, on that? Yeah, the problem in Montana is that Montana passed a, a mini-DOMA, a Defense of Marriage Act type state constitutional amendment. So if you want to challenge that, you have to go to federal court and invoke the 14th Amendment. Uh, but what they're seeking to do is they're saying, okay, you won't let us marry. We contend that under the Equal Protection Clause of the Montana Constitution, we same-sex couples are equally situated with different sex couples, but because we can't marry, we're shut out of all of these rights and benefits uh, and responsibilities under state law. And so we want the court to declare that we're entitled to equal protection of the laws and to issue an injunction requiring the legislature to give it to us. And the way to give it to them presumably would be a civil union or domestic partnership statute that would provide a method of registration that would uh, extend the same rights of marriage and the same responsibilities of marriage to same-sex couples who registered, et cetera, et cetera. They want something like the original Vermont Civil Union Act or the California Domestic Partnership Law. They're saying that's what we think we should be able to get out of the Montana Supreme Court. Uh, now, the, the district judge dismissed the case, found it was not a justiciable claim. They said they're asking us to order the legislature to pass a statute. We don't do that. Uh, the Supreme Court, by a vote of four to three, affirmed the uh, majority of the court. Three of the uh, members of the court uh, dissented uh, and uh, strongly argued that the plaintiffs should be entitled to a declaration at least of what the constitutional analysis would be uh, and uh, because the the majority of the court doesn't say anything about what the level of judicial scrutiny would be under the state equal protection clause if one were attacking any particular uh, state law. Uh, so the majority says in agreement with the district court, this, this is a political controversy. You go to the legislature. If you want a civil union act, go to the legislature. They said uh, it's not appropriate for us to issue a declaratory judgment that says you're entitled to equal rights when uh, we don't even know from your complaint which statutes you claim are discriminating against you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the dissenter, James Nelson, who was retiring from the court and who wrote a 100-plus page dissent 
uh, he, sort of getting everything off his chest. <laughs> you know, he said, this is my last chance to write on, on a gay rights case and I'm going to give him my all basically. Uh, and uh, he says, look, for purposes of the state equal protection clause, I think sexual orientation is a suspect classification. I think there should be heightened scrutiny. I think there should be a presumption that same-sex couples are entitled to the same benefits as everyone else. Uh, he even adds in a, a section of his dissent that wasn't joined by the other two dissenters that he thinks the Montana Marriage Amendment was unconstitutional under the state constitution, wow. which is way out there. Good but, for him. But the majority said, look, if you've got a beef with a particular statute, with a particular regulation, then you should attack it. So they said on, on remand, uh, we uphold the, the uh, trial judge's decision that you haven't presented a justiciable controversy, but you can replead, identify the particular statutes you uh, have trouble with. On that point, though, you, you point out that the dissent points out that they well, did mention a whole bunch of statutes. But not in their so. complaint, evidently. Elsewhere in the suit papers, they came up with a list when they were pressed. They came up with a list. And in fact, uh, Justice Nelson appends to his dissent the list. He says, look, they've identified the statutes. Here they are. It's pretty exhausting. You know, go to town. <laughs> so, so, so the issue for the plaintiffs now in this case is that they want to pursue this by filing a new complaint that lists all the statutes uh, because the, the majority of the Supreme Court suggested that the arguments as to whether a particular statute is unconstitutional may vary. That the question with respect to each statute is what is the state's interest in treating same-sex couples differently? Are, are the, on, on that front, are the plaintiffs here on their own or uh, in terms of their counsel or one of the major LGBT rights groups involved? I don't, I don't believe this was brought by one of the major groups. Because this just seems like a tall task. Uh, yeah, to and, and, this, and this, is, this is very unusual. All of the prior litigation we've seen has been seeking marriage. Uh, the idea to uh, seek marriage in a state with a marriage amendment or rather to seek something other than marriage in a state with a marriage amendment in the state courts uh, I think is a strategy born of the fact that the Montana Supreme Court has been okay on some gay rights issues in prior cases. And, I mean, and we have seen in other places that yeah. obviously having that initial you know, civil union opportunity and things like that may set the stage later for you know, further progress down the road. So it could right. be a strategy in a state that you know, legislatively yeah. maybe they don't have many friends. But It's, it's rather interesting. It, it's, it seems to me though that the, the court sort of overlooks. They say you know, they're, they're not asking for appropriate relief. But they're basically asking for what the Vermont Supreme Court and the New Jersey Supreme Court well, did. Well, I did want to ask you directly then, leaving aside this whole you know, pleading with precision what statutes they're attacking, attacking et cetera, et cetera. The separation of powers argument here, I mean, is it really so unusual for plaintiffs to ask the court to give meaning to the state's constitution by ordering some sort of vindication of rights under it? I mean, it still affords the legislature the opportunity to fashion what that would look yeah. like. I well, mean, you know, I would I would look at the fiscal equity lawsuit well, in New York, for I, example. Was at, it's not just New York. I was actually going to yeah. go to the education finance right. uh, lawsuits because what happens there is they say that there is this right under the state constitution to a certain level of education and access, and then they go so far as in New York as to order the appropriation of a certain amount of money. Well, they didn't. Well, no, they said that the appropriate range in a certain yes was they was left between. it to the legislature, and the result has been disappointing. Yeah, well, <laughs> because the state ran into the same fiscal crisis as everyone else, and uh, so that's right. But they did not throw up their hands and say right. they could not get involved in it. Right, they didn't say well, but but that's because there was a uh, question of whether a specific practice was unconstitutional, and I think what the Montana Supreme Court is saying here, it's it seems a little amorphous. 
uh, to us for you to ask us to just declare that the structure of Montana law, to the extent that it excludes same-sex couples, is unconstitutional. Judge Nelson says, but that's what declaratory judgments are for. <laughs> so, you know, there's an argument about the scope of the Declaratory Judgment Act in Montana. So I would suspect a little last question on this. I mean, I know they have to decide, but why wouldn't the plaintiffs now decide that we're going to we'll, – we'll go through the task of identifying – Either the statutes that, if declared unconstitutional, will afford us the greatest relief or, alternatively, just go after every single well, one under the I sun. Well, I think if they have the time to wait, they may want to wait to see what the Supreme Court does, <laughs> the U.S. Supreme Court does this spring. Well, if they're uh, gonna, they could be waiting and hearing that all, all that's yeah. about is standing. Yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure what their time limit is to replead here, but it, it may be that they want to wait because then they may be in a position to bring a 14th Amendment case. It might be nice to have that in their pocket. Right. Good point, Art. See? I'm, we're going to leave it there. Uh, we're going to be back uh, discussing one last case, also concerning uh, this one, a domestic partnership law in uh, in Wisconsin. And here's the rub in that one: whether that state's domestic partnership law violates an earlier amendment to the Wisconsin to Wisconsin's uh, constitution, which was in effect uh, a, another mini doma situation. We'll be right back. We're back discussing the Wisconsin case of Appling versus Doyle, and this is whether their domestic partnership law violates their marriage amendment, their state constitutional amendment, barring uh, limiting marriage uh, as only between a man and a woman. So tell us what's going on here. Okay. In 2006, the voters of Wisconsin passed their amendment, which says, only a marriage between one man and one woman shall be valid or recognized as a marriage in the state. A legal status identical or substantially similar to that of marriage for unmarried individuals shall not be valid or recognized. See, in the, the state. proponents then of that were trying to be very thorough yes. to, to stop any rights they from wanted, being afforded. Well, they wanted to stop out civil unions and domestic well, partnerships exactly. as well. All right. So, just a few years later, in 2009, the Wisconsin legislature passed a statute creating a domestic partnership registry open to same-sex couples. And uh, this registry uh, was accompanied by certain specified rights that registered domestic partners would have. And uh, the issue here in this lawsuit, which was brought, brought by the proponents of the original uh, anti-marriage amendment, uh, they said, well, this is substantially similar and therefore it violates the state constitution. And they struck out in the trial court, and now uh, on December 20th, they struck out in the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. And, and, and on that, I, I don't think this is unfair for me to say. It's what they really probably wanted that amendment to say in the first instance was that no rights right. would be able to be afforded to same-sex right. couples. And but clearly that probably wasn't right. going to fly. Some other states uh, have in their anti-marriage amendments uh, said no incidents of marriage, but they said no status – that is identical or substantially similar. And the legislative history of that, which the court addresses in its opinion, shows that at the time what they wanted to prohibit was a Vermont-style civil union. And for those uh, with some historical perspective, the Vermont-style civil union was enacted in 2000 in response to the Vermont Supreme Court's 1999 decision in Baker versus State uh, in which they held that same-sex couples were entitled to equal benefits. And they said, and the legislature shall decide how they get it. They could give them marriage. They could give them something else. The legislature passed the nation's first Civil Union Act, 
which basically gave uh, people who were united as civil union partners all of the legal rights under state law of married couples. And that, uh, according to the legislative history uh, from 2006 of this amendment, is what the proponents wanted to prohibit. They were specifically asked, does this mean that, for example, the state cannot give domestic partnership health benefits to its employees? They said, no, it doesn't mean that. It means they can't create a status identical or substantially similar. Uh, so now the argument devolved down to whether this new domestic partnership law is uh, identical or substantially similar, and it was easy for the court to say no. It's not. It has a limited list of rights. It has different procedures for establishing, different procedures for getting out of it. Uh, it's not identical by any means and not even substantially similar. Interesting. Is this the yeah. first example of a case where the argument's being made that the, the domestic partnership, the availability of domestic partnerships violates the, yeah. the constitutional Yeah, there, there, there are a few other cases, and so far we've, we've done pretty well on those. Uh, we, we lost out, I think, in, in Michigan in one case, uh, but uh, there's a new decision in Michigan that will be reported in the February issue of Law Notes. As your face we, lights we'll, up. And we'll talk about it next month maybe okay, in perfect. our podcast. And it is amazing. I always reflect on this. I shouldn't be amazed. But our opponents really, they're, they're, very, they're very committed to the cause. They, they are. They, they, will, they really will, they <laughs> will, will. will make every argument available. I mean, I mean one of the important uh, stories uh, that we're not going to go into any length here, but the people who were opposing the enactment of marriage equality in New York – uh, they they persisted, and uh, just days ago, the New York Court of Appeals refused to take their case, thus upholding the appellate division ruling that marriage equality was validly enacted in New York. All right. Well, let's leave with that note. We're going to take a very short break, and we're going to conclude with our Of Notes segment. Stay with us. All right, Art Leonard, what do you have of note? I have of note that within days of each other, two federal district judges in the same courthouse came to diametrically opposite opinions as to whether California violates the First Amendment rights of health care workers who are trying to do gay conversion therapy on minors. An uh, interesting lunchroom situation in that courthouse. Uh, it must be. I, I, maybe they don't talk to each other. I, I wonder. But, uh, but Judge William Shubb and Judge Kimberly Mueller totally disagreed on this, and the Ninth Circuit will have to sort it out. But in the meantime, the Ninth Circuit has stayed the uh, application of the law, so gay conversion therapy of minors continues in California. That's I, I, I laugh not in a – there's nothing funny about that, but laugh that there could be um, – that this is still going to go on for a bit of time because hopefully the court will reach the right decision in that case. Yes. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Um, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting le-gal.org. That's le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at legal.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Arthur Leonard, as always, and happy 2013. <laughs>